Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here's your 30-second summary. There are some parallels to our modern-day pandemic within Mary Mellon's story and things we can learn from it. The first and foremost being, wash your dang hands. But was Typhoid Mary a villain or just a victim of circumstances? And also, peach ice cream is the best ice cream. But not with poop on it. The end. Let's talk about Mary Mallon, otherwise known as Typhoid Mary. But first, let's drop her into history. In 1869, Elizabeth Cady Stanton became the first woman to testify before Congress. And in the same year, she and Susan B. Anthony formed the National Women's Suffrage Association. Wyoming became the first U.S. territory to give women the right to vote. The removable tempered steel plow blade was invented. The steam-powered brake and the stovetop waffle iron were patented. With 10 salaried players, the Cincinnati Red Stockings became the first professional baseball team. New York's American Museum of Natural History, Paris's Folie Bergère, and Egypt's Suez Canal all opened. Lexicographer, physician, and inventor of the slide rule and an inexpensive pocket-sized chessboard, Peter Marc Roger died. Harriet Tubman married her second husband, Nelson Davis. Grigory Rasputin and Mahatma Gandhi were both born. And in 1869, a baby was born and given the name Mary Mallon, but history would remember her as Typhoid Mary. Mary Mallon was born on September 23, 1869 in Cookstown, County Tyrone, Ireland, the daughter of John Mallon and Catherine Igo. And from her own lips, she had no sisters but may have, in fact, had one older brother, question mark. The <laughs> historical record is a little thin. Yeah, I did find one genealogy site that had her as the third of seven, but I wouldn't trust it. And I wouldn't really trust Mary Mellon telling people she had no sisters either. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> what we do know, just based on looking around that area in that time, that her family was likely very poor, if you were to play the odds, but also... There was evidence that she might have gone to school, at least for a while. Public schools in Ireland started in 1831. Plenty of time for her to be included in that group. Also, she was good at calculations and wrote in a fine copperplate hand, which was taught to millions of school children all over the world in primary school at the time. Records weren't kept, and Mary didn't talk about her past at all. She was famous for it. So history of her early years is extremely fuzzy. We do know that she immigrated to the United States. We think that it was in 1883. Even that isn't absolutely positive. She came unaccompanied at the age of 14 or 15, along with hundreds of thousands of other Irish immigrants. This is a period of massive emigration fleeing poverty in Ireland, not to the famous Ellis Island facility but through its predecessor, Castle Garden. And I have to say, reading about Castle Garden, and also the Bowery Boys has an episode on Castle Garden, so <laughs> we'll give you a link to that. I liked reading about Castle Garden and all the services they provided. Any sick people went off to a hospital. They took your name and destination. They would store your luggage for you safely. You didn't have to worry that it would be stolen. There was a money exchange on the premises. There was letter delivery and receipt 
on the premises, a labor exchange in case you came and needed a job. You could buy railroad tickets there, and there was a list of vetted and municipally approved boarding houses so that you couldn't be robbed, you know, by shysters right when you got onto our soil. I think that this whole place sounds like it was operating on a very human scale. Oh, definitely. As a matter of fact, that may have been the only time in her life that the city treated her well. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) I know it's not really worth uh, laughing, but like, that's it. This is the last time. I assume since there was a big waiting room that if people were coming to meet you, you had a facility, you didn't just have to stand in a hallway somewhere. And I assume that's where she waited for her relatives. Word is that she had an aunt and an uncle that lived in New York City to take her in upon her arrival. So that's a little bit more reassuring than landing there with no one. So there she goes. And the details of her life here become quite thin, but we can almost certainly guess that she did not go to school. New York only had mandatory school up to the age of 14, and that was even part-time. You only had to go to school 80 days in a whole year. She was a graduate by the time she reached our shores. (laughs) A graduate of (laughs) eighth grade. Yeah, of youth. So, yeah, Mary was already on the top of this range. It's much more likely as a young teen that she registered at a domestic employment agency as a servant. Especially since her aunt and uncle had died, she was going to need to find a place to live. And living with her employers was probably the easiest and safest bet for her. So for the next 10 years or so, the progress of her career, again, is a mystery. Was she a maid of all work? The only servant in a middle-class house? Maybe. She did later have laundry and seamstress skills. Maybe she had to do it all in her first decade of servant work. Or did she start at the bottom of the ladder in a big fancy house, a la Daisy in Downton Abbey, as a lowly scullery maid, maybe a kitchen maid, working her way up? Big establishments like that weren't exactly common in this country. But we've talked about the Gilded Age heiresses. We sure have. We've talked about Mrs. Astor's 400. And New York is certainly the place to be if you're going to try to get a job in a house like that. If you're ambitious and want to climb the ranks, New York is where you want to be. And given the fact that she is going to continue to be employed by these upper crust families, that tells me that she got in there at some point and worked her way up. Eventually, she was a cook. She was known as a cook. Because however she did it, Mary emerges from the veil of mystery and into the historical record around the age of 31, working as a cook in the resort town of Mamaroneck, New York, about 20 miles north of Manhattan. One of those locations like Newport, we've talked about that, or Saratoga, where one went to raise one's pinky and hob with the other knobs, you know. (laughs) These aren't people that go on holiday or go on vacation. These are people who summer. They go places to spend the entire summer, and they call it summering. (laughs) I summered in (laughs) Mamaroneck. Well, she was the cook in a large house with a large number of other servants. So all she did was cook, although probably just for the summer. But this is a status position. A cook is an upper servant. Mary has moved on up from wherever she began. (laughs) Cooks are valuable properties. These houses, they needed cooks. The cooks that were reliable, that were hardworking, that didn't miss any days, that were willing to work from pre-dawn through after midnight refreshments at parties. They were very much in demand. And Mary could have either registered at agencies or she could have been swiped from one house to another by a woman saying, you know, we need a cook. I'm just going to pay you a little bit more. 
And Mary said, okay. And I imagine that was very awkward at cocktail parties. (laughs) When you find out that lady so-and-so has pinched your cook. (laughs) In defiance of our usual chronological format, and to keep the mystery alive just for a little bit longer, I would like to jump ahead from this point in Mamaroneck to six years later. But we'll come back. Don't worry. We'll come back through the missing years at a later point. Our curtain opens in Oyster Bay on Long Island. In August of 1906, Mary was hired by the Warren family, Charles Warren. He was the vice president of the Lincoln National Bank in Manhattan that would be home to the Vanderbilt money. So it wasn't Joe's bank. Also, this was the the neighborhood, don't you know, the president of the United States. Mr. Teddy Roosevelt himself has a house called Sagamore Hill. The Summer White House, they called it, is right over there. And then you point. <laughs> or you don't point because it's not polite to point. Emily no. Post said so. So you just, just nod. Yeah. Lift your eyes in the right direction. <laughs> Colonel Warren's bank had some pretty prominent clients. This family fit right in. They had had a genteel and fabulous upper crust life so far this summer while summering until late August when bad things started to happen. So it's August of 1906. The Warren family, Mr. and Mrs. Warren, four children and five servants were mid-summer on Long Island. And then one of the daughters became desperately ill. Of course, the finest doctor available was called. But before a conclusion could be reached, yet another daughter was struck down with the same symptoms, high fever, a headache, desperate GI symptoms that one even hates to mention in polite company, fatigue, a swollen abdomen. And then Mrs. Warren herself went down and a couple of maids and bafflingly one of the gardeners. It's typhoid fever, said the doctor with great surprise. It's what? This was not a disease that hit, you know, the best people. And the best towns. And this was a clean house. Typhoid is not our thing, dear. Correct. The common sentiment was typhoid was a disease associated with dirt and crowding and, frankly, poor people with their slovenly habits. Not the 1%, certainly. And here is a case of six sick people in one house. Unprecedented. Alarming. Everybody in the house recovered after a time, and they fled back to safety in New York City. But the owner of the house had a giant problem because he relied on the income from this summer rental. And the customer base was now looking at his house like it was the Amityville Horror House or something. Obviously, there's something fundamentally wrong with that house. They'd certainly never subject their own families to such danger ever. Normally, typhoid has like a 10% fatality rate. But for some reason in New York that summer, it was hovering at 18%. So one in five people died of the typhoid that they had gotten. Well, Mr. and Mrs. George Thompson, who owned the house, may have thought, okay, no one's going to hear about it. But then splashed on the front page of the New York Times was a headline, five ill in one household. And what's even worse, the article went on, the journalists blamed the water in the house for the outbreak. So now they were publicly in trouble. And shamed. Mr. Thompson was desperate to get to the bottom of this and restore his reputation. And so he hired experts to go through the house and the grounds. Plumbing was especially, given the article, looked at. 
And there was one indoor toilet in the whole giant house. And there was an outside privy for the staff. So the plumbing went through a series of tests where they would drop dye in at the top and watch and see if it leaked anywhere, especially into the kitchen or out of the kitchen ceiling, which is so gross. But it all (laughs) passed with flying colors. That's fine. Okay. Okay. The outhouse was also cleared. Sewer gas was thought to maybe hold on to the typhoid and then release it as it got into the air. So that was tested. No, we're fine. All the drinking water faucets, nothing. Well, okay, manure was spread on the garden. Maybe it got contaminated with human feces. Also gross, but no, completely hoarse, completely fine. Um, (laughs) Suppliers were questioned. The milkman came in for some analysis because dairy was thought to be a very common vector, as did this poor clam seller out on the beach got accosted. There was an old woman who sold fresh clams out of a tent on the beach, and they wanted to know maybe it was the clams that was doing it. But the test revealed no. They even went to look at local farmers. You know, maybe they had washed their fruit with contaminated water. But nope, everything checked out just fine. And other houses were using those same products and they didn't get sick. So your usual vectors of transmission were all cleared. So the verdict was, sorry, we don't know. We don't know, but it looks like you're good now. The house seems safe to us. I'm like, no, uh, 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 tell that to the bank president's calling me a dirty landlord. I can't, I can't have this. <laughs> you know, I, I have to have an answer. This is the cause circle. We took care of this and threw it away. The end. I have to be able to tell. And so the anxious Mr. Thompson activated his network. Does anybody have a guy I, um, I can bring in on this? Please help me. Finally, he got a lead on a sanitary engineer named George Soper. George Soper built himself as an epidemic fighter. He came highly recommended. He was educated. He had a PhD from Columbia from the sanitary engineering department. He was brought in a lot of times to deal with epidemics in college towns um, when the entities, i.e. the college and the towns, were fighting over, quote, whose fault it was. And I just want to read a quote, given our current situation, i.e. Florida and New York. This is a quote from Dr. Soper. It is amazing to me to see the attempts made by town authorities to shift responsibilities for their epidemics on to other people. Huh. Well, he had an impressive seven-year history of hunting down illnesses, specifically typhoid, and all on the East Coast, Boston and New York. One time he had gone in and evicted two people and had their house burned down because he thought that there was no way to stop the epidemic unless the house burned down. That's how thorough he was. <laughs> he, uh, we, I think we'd now call him an epidemiologist, um, but that didn't really exist. He came to Oyster Bay and reviewed everyone's work. Just sure he was going to find a flaw because that's the kind of guy he is. You can tell I already love him. Um, <laughs> but then he was sad because he didn't find anything that they had done obviously wrong. Okay, well, I'm going to start my own investigation then, during which Dr. Soper discovered that at the beginning of August, the cook that they had taken out there with him had peace out it for some reason, up and quit, maybe one of... Mrs. Warren's friends poached her right out from the dinner table. We just don't know. She's gone, and Mrs. Warren needed another cook. Mrs. Warren had to contact Mrs. Stricker's Servants Agency in New York. Get me a cook quickly, please. My social calendar's all filled up. I need a cook desperately. And so she arrived shortly afterward and began work. Mary Mallon was her name. Aha! 
said Soper, a lead, a cook who had arrived within the incubation period for typhoid. Still, he thought, a cook, though. Typhoid's typically killed by the high temperature of cooking. Mrs. Warren, were there salads or, or fruit or... Oh, her peach ice cream was to die for. Quite literally, ma'am. I picture him making a check. Raw <laughs> peaches would be a mighty nice disease carrier. But she was never sick. Everyone agreed. Mary Mallon was disagreeable and wasn't awesome at cleaning up after herself, but she wasn't ever coughing or super tired or complaining of pain or anything. Still, this lead was the only one that Dr. Soper had to follow. And he did say, on this level of evidence, if you were missing a necklace and the cook disappeared, you would certainly try to find her. So that was his next goal. It is time to explore some new skills or deepen existing passions and just get lost in creativity with Skillshare's online classes. What you find there just might surprise you or inspire you. Skillshare is an online learning community. There are millions of people there all taking classes together and taking the next step in their creative journey. You'll find thousands of classes there on things like photography, video production, freelancing, design. And I would like to make a history-based suggestion. Many historians have begged us, start keeping a journal. We are living through a moment in history. And it's hard to recognize while you're sitting in it or sitting in your living room. And so I took a class called Creative Writing for All, a 10-day journaling challenge. And what the teacher, Emily Gold, is asking you to do is to notice new details about your world. I am feeling very, very excited about this. It's kind of a way um, to get my feelings on paper. You can explore your creativity and get two months of premium membership at skillshare.com slash chicks. That is two whole months of unlimited access to thousands of classes for free. Get started and join today by heading to skillshare.com slash chicks. That's two free months of unlimited access to thousands of classes at Skillshare.com slash chicks. I'll see you there. So Dr. Soper headed off to the agency up on 28th Street and got Mary Mallon's resume. Incomplete, you understand, said the agency. Cooks of this caliber are often hired by word of mouth or are listed with multiple agencies. Cooks can pretty much write their own tickets at this level. <laughs> and so he went to the other agencies being nothing but a completionist, and he put together a comprehensive report of Mary Mallon's past 10 years as best he could and uncovered an unfortunate series of events. While Mary was working at the Mamaroneck house, a man came to visit who developed typhoid symptoms. He was about 10 days into his visit, but he had also traveled to other places on Long Island. So it wasn't conclusive that he had gotten the disease from the house. He could have picked it up anywhere. That was just dismissed as one of those things. Her very next job on record in New York City itself 
the laundress was sent off to a hospital very sick with typhoid. But laundresses are perceived to be the dirtiest, lowest form of life in the city's servant hierarchy. And of course, one of, quote, those people is going to get typhoid. Nobody even blinked an eye. No. I have to say, after reading all the stuff about typhoid and everything, I really feel badly for laundresses because they really took the brunt of it. You know, mm-hmm. they, they were fired a lot for typhoid. But in this house, the laundress was the only one that got sick. Nobody else did. People moved on with their lives. 1902 in Dark Harbor, Maine, though. Oh, you're not going to pronounce that right? Dark Harbor? <laughs> It's about 100 miles north of Portland in Penobscot Bay, kind of close to where Martha Stewart has her house. Is Martha Stewart still timely? I mean, I know she has that Snoop Dogg show, and actually, that's actually funnier and more awesome than anything I think she's ever done in her whole life. I'm still mad at her for treating Ina Garden like a servant. Yeah. So I'm still a little bitter about that situation, but she she do make a fine magazine. She does. <laughs> and, uh, and I do like that Snoop show. So never mind. Martha Stewart is very timely. Hooray for Martha Stewart. (laughs) Well, in the household where Mary Mallon cooked, the Drayton household, seven of the nine members of this family went down with typhoid. The only two immune were Mr. Drayton himself, who had had typhoid as a child and was therefore immune, and the cook. And after the nurse he'd hired to treat everyone also succumbed to the disease, which makes eight victims of this particular outbreak, Mr. Drayton relied on his cook to help him nurse everybody and wash everything and take care of everyone. He was so grateful that he doubled her pay. Yeah, he had given her a $50 bonus at the end of the summer, which is about $1,500 today. That's how grateful he was. In this particular case, there were two epidemiologists brought in. One guy was from Boston. Another one was from Philly. And they both worked on trying to find the source of it. They concluded that it wasn't Mary. They didn't even talk about her, but it was the footman in the kitchen with the poopy hands that brought in the disease. That's like the worst game of Clue ever. I know. <laughs> the footman in the kitchen with the poopy hands. <laughs> 1904, Sands Point, Long Island. Four servants in the Gilby house began to suffer from typhoid. 1906, Tuxedo, New York, home of the dinner jacket. Again, the laundress. And so, you know, the alarm bells didn't ring. In all of these cases, there was no completely satisfactory explanation ever found for how these outbreaks occurred. There were educated guesses, like I guess they picked it up somewhere else. In each case, individually, I mean, at most, there's a pink flag. There's no red flags, unless you look like George Soper did at the entire body of Mary's work. And all together, they started to make more of a picture. And he read these accounts with something like excitement, which is sick, sort of. But this is his field. And he had been reading this literature from some German researchers on the possibility of there being healthy carriers of typhoid. That is to say, people who don't show any symptoms at all themselves, but show up in a house distributing germs like the Queen of the May. Hello, I brought you a horrible gift today. Dr. Soper had never heard of anyone investigating healthy carriers in America, and he'd certainly never seen one in real life. And now, here before him, in his notebook, was a textbook case ready to give him fame and a name in epidemiology, 
which is probably a really small circle. But, oh yes, he could not wait to dig into this. He was very, very excited at the prospect in front of him. He knew from his previous work that people who actually were symptomatic with the disease often carried their disease around with them for a while after they seemed better. So he already had the testing protocols ready to go. I mean, he already knew what to do about that. All he needed now was his subject, Mary Mallon. Well, he found her cooking in a house on Park Avenue. She was working at the Bowen family house. And just a couple of months after she had arrived, a maid developed typhoid, which was bad enough. By the time Dr. Soper discovered that Mary was in this house, the Bowen's only child, 25-year-old Effie, was very ill with typhoid and she was going to die. That's how ill she was. This is where Dr. Soper made his first mistake. He shows up at a complete stranger's place of work and in front of her boss and everyone who worked there. He basically accused her of being a dirty, disease-ridden, ne'er-do-well pig. I mean, remember the stigma of typhoid as a lower class, poor people disease caused by, quote, those people and their filth. What an insult to a woman who'd worked for the finest families of New York for over a decade. And then this psycho who had just burst in and said he was a doctor. You know, like, how do we know? We know, you and I, listeners. Oh, but he was a PhD doctor. He wasn't a medical doctor. If he's flashing doctor around, then... It's a little misnomer. Maybe. Well, well, but she doesn't know. He's some fool off the street, as far yeah. as she knows. And he asked her for samples of her feces. Get out. <laughs> oh, my God. Imagine sitting at your office and some excited guy burst through the door with a jar asking you to poop in it in front of the guy from Accounts Receivable. You know, <laughs> like, well, you take the jar and go, OK, cool. I'll be right back. Yeah. yeah. Oh, oh, um, I also want urine and blood. No. You would not, and neither did Mary. Mary grabbed up a carving fork, the nearest thing to hand, and chased him down the hall and out of her kitchen and out of her life, as far as she was concerned. (laughs) There may have been cussing. Mary was known to have a very colorful vocabulary, but what Dr. Soper said afterward was, I felt rather lucky to escape. As he's leaving, he's shrieking, I'll make sure you get the finest of medical attention. In his head, he thought... He was going to be helping her. He thought he was being very logical. Of course, she was going to understand. Of course, she wanted to find out if she was sick. Of course, she wanted to give her blood and her urine and her feces. Oh, my. Well, and she'd never been sick a day in her life. So this was crazy anyway. And then I read somewhere something that made a lot of sense to me. Any explanation he gave her of... invisible monsters living in her body, you know, might have sounded cockamamie to her. By which, of course, I mean bacteria or germs. Um, The miasma theory was still kind of the predominant theory, especially among the uneducated. The thought that bad smells carried disease, you know, was still Uh up there. And so this whole there's invisible things that live in your body that creep out and make people sick is kind of science fiction, like midichlorians in Star Wars or something. So she may not have even believed a word he said at all. Well, he was sure disappointed, to put it mildly. That didn't go well. He seems not to have even realized that his approach might not have been awesome. And honestly, he seems to have started viewing her as some sort of 
purposeful killer, if not that, at least as his adversary in in this war, when she was just like some fool, wait till I tell you, came into my work today, you know. He was personally affronted, though, that she was preventing him from his great success, from publishing, from the accolades of the other two epidemiologists. Yeah. <laughs> um, obviously, she didn't, obviously, because she, back in the house, went right back to making dinner. So her employers weren't buying what Soper was selling either. So naturally, she's a little upset, but, you know, she kind of lets it go. But he, it was eaten away at him. Is this how we're playing it, Mary Mallon? And he started to stalk her. He followed her to basically her stomping grounds, the place that she went when she had a day off. Often after work, she would bring some food to this house. And so he followed her there, saw where she was going, asked around the neighborhood, hey, have you, do you know this woman? She looks like this. She does this. He was able to discover that Mary had a boyfriend. His name was August Bryhoff. He was about 51. He lived in a really crappy top floor apartment with a big dog. He claimed to have been a retired policeman. He didn't spend his days policing. He spent them uh, day drinking, essentially. And it seemed as if Mary was bringing leftovers from the Bowen house to August frequently. So then Dr. Super Sleuth <laughs> slid right next to Mr. Bryhoff at the corner bar where you can find him most days, Monday through Friday. And hey, matey, old buddy, bought him some drinks and they made friends. And after a few such sessions, Bryhoff was persuaded to let Dr. Soper in. At first, a little field trip among friends. And then to let him in on purpose, to wait for Mary, to ambush her. This time, Soper brought a backup, his buddy, Dr. Bert Hubler. And they stood in the hallway and waited for Mary to arrive. And when she finally rounded the corner, he was, again, not so great on the bedside manner. Miss Malin, surely you can understand that if we determine if you're a carrier, we can help you and stop you from getting sick. Your blood, your urine, your feces, please? Well, and so two strange men are standing in a dark hallway at the top of your stairs. You've just gotten off work. You don't expect them to be there. And they start screaming and shrieking at you. Honestly, think about that, ladies. That is very scary. Mm -hmm. And then the door opens to your own apartment that you share with your boyfriend. And you realize that he's the one that let them in the front door. And he's kind of in on this thing. She feels a little betrayed. Like, did I not tell you about that guy from work? Because this is that guy, the crazy one. Why did you let him in? And so she's feeling very, very angry. And <laughs> she loses her temper. Sorry. <laughs> That's a polite way of saying yeah. it. <laughs> she would not be blamed for anything but the likes of him. Typhoid is everywhere. You can't swing a cat without hitting typhoid in this neighborhood. And how dare he blame her? She's never been sick a day in her life and blah, 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 besmirching her name and let's go with the cursing. And you know what? Tough ladies from Ireland in this time and in this place, especially strong well-built ones like Mary Mallon, athletic ones, as George Soper later called her. <laughs> Ladies like that know perfectly well how to toss a man down a flight of stairs. And so Dr. Soper found himself a flight lower than he was when he came. <laughs> but Mary was right. He had no right to get the things that he was asking for. He only had the right to get a piece of her mind. Quite frankly. <laughs> and he did. He scurried, scurried away. There is no manly verb for this. 
And he ran right away to tattletale on her to the authorities, then the commissioner of the New York City Health Department. And by now, he's, I hate using this word, but, you know, he's kind of hysterical, bursting into their office and telling him this, calling her a menace and a human culture tube, and she's so unstable and she's very dangerous, and you better take a whole gang with you. Well, George was right to go to them. I mean, he knew he didn't have the power, but the health department certainly did. The New York City Health Department was actually a board made up of doctors, doctors of medicine, and they held absolute power, legal power, when it came to matters health-related in the city. They handled everything from sanitation to waters and sewers to vaccinations to quarantine hospitals. Anything that had to do with the spread of disease in the city, that was their area of expertise. Admirably, I think, understanding who they're dealing with, at least in, in the person of him, they sent one woman doctor. And I think that shows um, delicacy in this first attempt. That person was Dr. S. Josephine Baker. And the S stood for Sarah, but it was silent. She went by Dr. Joe, but Josephine Baker, just the name got me so excited when I first read it. Um, she couldn't afford to go to Vassar. That was her school of choice. But mm. her backup school was the Women's Medical College at the New York Infirmary. And I just want to say very briefly, even though she doesn't appear in this story for very long, this woman, Dr. Joe, goes on to spend her entire career working for the health and welfare of children in the city. So um, this is early in her career when she um, is sent with some thought for the subject's feelings, I think, sending a woman to the Park Avenue house to see if she is any more successful. And she actually has the common sense to go discreetly to the back door. She does, but she's also armed with no information. They just said, go there, collect samples. The end. Something that she does all the time. So why would she expect to encounter what she did? They gave her absolutely no background. Like you said, Dr. Joe goes to the servant's entrance and knocks on the door and she introduces herself and she says, hello, Mary, I'm here to collect. And Mary doesn't even let her finish. She just says, no, no, no. And then she started swearing at her. You know, she's all done, doctors or people pretending to be doctors and harassing her at work. She's all done. And she slams the door in the little tiny doctor's face. But Dr. Joe was very determined. She had her marching orders. She knew what she had to do. So she showed up the very next day. It was a snowy morning. And she had, depending on your source, either three or five police officers with her and an ambulance waiting. She was going to get Mary's samples. And if she couldn't get Mary's samples, she was going to get Mary and bring her in. So she comes back with her policemen and they block off the exits. They muscle their way in. And Mary, naturally, in my mind, took off running. And the chase was on all through the house and all through the yard. And none of the other servants saw a thing. Gee, officer, I don't know. Yeah, they totally saw. <laughs> yeah. um, so for three hours, everybody is running around like some kind of fast motion Keystone cops. <laughs> and they were about to give up when they saw a little bit of fabric fluttering at the door of the next door house's outhouse. And someone had piled junk in front of the door, but from the outside, it looked curious. So the policeman pushed everything out of the way, and there she was, trapped in the outhouse. No, she didn't go easily. It wasn't like, you know, hide and seek. Oh, you found me. Let's go. No, no, no. It was fight or flight as far as she was concerned. So Mary did put up a fight, but finally they wrestled her into the ambulance. They smacked the horses and 
got that ambulance roaring through the city. And back in the cabin, Dr. Joe is sitting on top of Mary to keep her in place, to keep her from thrashing about. Now, Dr. Joe is like 5'2". She's not that big, but she's extremely brave as far as I'm concerned. What she said later was, it was like being in a cage with an angry lion. But again, I don't blame Mary Mallon. Does anyone, I mean, no one's asking her anything or explaining properly or treating her like a person. Mm -hmm. No one has done this. Everyone is exerting their random authority. She doesn't know who anybody is. She's got no documentation. Just randos show up. And now she's being hauled into an ambulance and people are sitting on her head. I mean, (laughs) Uh, yeah, no, I'm totally with you. I can totally under, you know what? The thing about this story is I can see both sides of it. I hate to be a both side person, but in this case, She's terrified. And nowadays they would show her the, you know, a document from the judge and the police department and the health department. See, it says right here, you have to come with me. But then they didn't have that. She had their word to go on. And in Mary's world, the word isn't worth a heck of a lot. Correct. So they took Mary and locked her in a mostly empty room at Willard Parker Hospital with very little more than just a chamber pot and a bed. And when... In the course of human events, nature called. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, I know. Yeah. I know. I'm like, yeah, they did. Ha- yeah, that's the best way to collect it, isn't it? <laughs> well, you know, it's kind of inevitable. So the doctors eventually got their samples and hustled them off for testing. And voila, just as Dr. Soper had hypothesized, we are looking at a sample full of typhoid. Do you sell your products online? Maybe you have a small eBay business like my son has, or you have an Etsy shop. Maybe you sell through Amazon. However you get your orders, ShipStation can help you deliver them quickly, save you money on the cost, and keep your customers happy. ShipStation.com is the fastest, easiest, and most affordable way to manage and ship your orders. With just a few clicks from any device, including your cell phone, you can be managing your orders, printing out labels, and getting your product out Fast. ShipStation works with all major carriers, including the United States Postal Service, FedEx, UPS, even Amazon Fulfillment. So you can compare and choose the best shipping solution for you and your customer. What my son likes the best is that his teeny tiny business can get the same postage discounts that are usually reserved for large Fortune 500 companies. No wonder ShipStation is the number one choice of online sellers. And right now, History Chicks listeners can try ShipStation free for 60 days when you use the offer code CHICKS. There's absolutely no risk. You can start your free trial without even entering your credit card information. Just visit ShipStation.com. There'll be a little microphone at the top of the homepage. Click that and type in the offer code CHICKS, C-H-I-C-K-S. That's ShipStation, all one word, ShipStation.com, then offer code CHICKS. ShipStation.com. Make ship happen. So now what? Mary worried about her reputation. Remember that Mr. Thompson was agonized over the thought that his house might be sick. And now people are telling her she's sick. She's worried about her career. So how 
is she going to live if they keep persecuting her? Dr. Soper showed up and, quote, found her curiously uncooperative. Surprise level zero. This man... (laughs) Oh, he had the bedside manner of, what, a chair? (laughs) He reminds me of um, Jim Parsons' character from Big Bang Theory. Oh, interesting. He says, nobody wants to harm you. Be reasonable. Okay, in defiance of everything that has just happened, i.e. people were sitting on my head in a carriage screaming around the corners. So yes, somebody does want to harm me. Uh, I'm not going to be reasonable. He says, we know you have caused cases of typhoid. We know you didn't mean to, but surely you must accept now that you've done so, people have died. You have killed them. And he explained to her that she didn't wash her hands thoroughly enough after she went potty. But the thing is... It would be hard to wash your hands thoroughly enough. You've seen, surely, let's say, Grey's Anatomy, maybe, scrubbing in while they're talking about their latest personal dramas. You know, and as far as I can tell, <laughs> at least the, the concept of that kind of extensive washing, multiple minutes with some kind of strong agent, antibacterial in nature, as well as a nail brush, that's accurate. Don't ask my friend Jennifer, though, about how irritating it is to see them scrubbing and then putting their face masks on after. Oh. She has to turn it off every time. Anyway, (laughs) Mary didn't wash her hands like that. You know what? No one washed their hands like that. No one does in restaurants now, I'm guessing. So enjoy the salad, you know? Okay. (laughs) He's making it sound like she's an ignorant, dirty hippie who didn't give two craps about serving people crap. But she did. (laughs) She absolutely did. So he's presenting it to her in the only way that he felt was logical. And he said, look, we can stop all of this. You can get out of here. You can go back to work. You can resume your life. You can get me out of your life. All you have to do is undergo an operation to have your gallbladder removed. Mary, we know that that's where all the germs are living. There's a colony of them in your gallbladder. If we take it out, you don't need this organ. You'll be fine. But Mary didn't even want to give them a sample of her poo. She certainly isn't going to lay on the table, get knocked unconscious, and give them an organ. And then, not reading the room... Dr. Soper asked for her help so he could write a book about her case, like how she never washed her hands, how many people you killed, like that, and then how your gallbladder operation went and that all that disease we found inside of you. Much to Dr. Soper's surprise, (laughs) she stood up, left the room, and slammed the bathroom door after her, to which he wrote, Mary did not wish to speak to me. Clueless (laughs) ding-dong. Doesn't she know? She's my ticket to stardom. It was decided by other officials and Dr. Soper that Mary Mellon was, in fact, a danger to the public. And so, for the public good, she had to be quarantined, isolated, on an island, North Brother Island, in the middle of the East River. Since 1885, Riverside Hospital had been a state-of-the-art quarantine hospital. They had cases of tuberculosis and yellow fever and smallpox and scarlet fever and, yes, typhoid patients. They were all housed on the island. Most of them were there for the rest of their life, but they were able to be contained because they can't escape. There's nowhere for them to go. It is a small island, 13 acres Not very big. They can't swim the East River. And the currents right around North Brother Island are vicious. So even if you were the best swimmer, it's dangerous. Sometimes, i.e. in the winter, the Coast Guard won't even go over there. Well, there was a ferry that traveled there every day, except in the winter. Because it was too dangerous. Right. They were shut off as soon as it got, you know, frigid cold outside. 
But Mary, who, after all, appeared to be perfectly healthy, was not sent to Riverside Hospital proper. She was given the old um, head of the nursing department used to have this little cottage on the grounds where she could actually see the city from her front door, if that's not tantalizing enough. She had a full kitchen. She had gas heat, electricity, the latest in indoor plumbing. People brought her supplies and and left them at her door, very similar to the way Instacart or Pizza Hut is operating today. Mm-hmm. Not you know we're not going to talk. We'll knock on the door and run away, and you can come on your own time and get it. They even gave her a little terrier to keep her company, so she had a dog. And this bungalow is if I'll put a picture in the show notes. It's kind of cute. There's a lot of windows. It's little. It is right on the shore, right on the water. Under normal circumstances, it would be kind of a cute little Airbnb. So she had everything except for what she really truly needed and wanted, which was her freedom. And she certainly did not have that. I am disappointed but not surprised to report that any number of experimental treatments were tried on her, quackery of all kinds, to try to rid her of the typhoid. Mm -hmm. And while that was happening on North Brother Island, out in the real world, her story had made the newspapers. Now, they didn't use her name. At least not her last name. They just called her Mary. And most of the time, they didn't even call her that. But they called her the human typhoid germ or the human culture tube or the human fever factory, which I would normally like because I'm a big fan of alliteration. But not this time, because it's just these really bad headlines while she is undergoing medical tests. She's having uh, psychological problems just based on her being locked up there. And she was turned into a cartoon in the newspapers. Her character was blackened. People started to call her Typhoid Mary. She became the subject of ridicule. Um, People started to fear her and hate her. And I just want to reiterate, lest we forget, Mary Mallon had done nothing criminal, you know, Mm -hmm. but she had become one of the most notorious figures in her own era. She didn't like it, but her life became kind of, she got a routine going. Every Wednesday, they would test her. During the next two years, she would have 165 specimens tested. But of those, the typhoid bacteria was only present 120 times. There was no sign of it. For 43 times. So she didn't always test positive. She seemed to be kind of an intermittent carrier. And all of those tests that you had talked about, all of those experimental medications weren't making any difference on when she tested positive or negative. You will likely be here for the rest of your life, said one of the helpful doctors to her, which of course was unacceptable to her. What right do they have to keep me here, said Mary Mallon. And she lawyered up and and history is not sure. Maybe it was the lawyer himself, his name's O'Neill, looking to get his name in the papers. Or maybe the lawyer was actually hired by William Randolph Hearst, publisher, to sell copies of his newspaper. Ooh, it's a David and Goliath story starring Mary Mallon as the victim, starring the grinding impersonal bureaucracy as the villain with the invisible menace of typhoid. It made good copy. Oh, and, sure. And he was super excited about that. She actually started to prepare about mm, nine months before things really became legal. August Bryhoff was coming to visit her and he would take samples. 
from the island back into Manhattan and took them to an independent lab to have them tested. And every single one of those samples tested negative for typhoid per this laboratory. Dum, dum, dum. So it gets a little more complicated. How reliable was Mary's lab? And why were its results so different from the, quote, official result from the island? It was problematic. They had other points on their side that the doctors on North Brother Island were not really even testing her anymore. And when they did, it was not on any kind of schedule and very slipshod. So are they serious about her being a carrier or are they messing around like what she thought they were? Her treatment was inconsistent and no one knew anything. She became, in her own words, nothing but a peep show for interns, to which I say, have one emergency C-section and you will become a peep show for interns. It's not just Mary Mallon. I know. They were pressuring her to have surgery, to satisfy their own curiosity, and also pressuring her to lie to get out of there and say, I'm going to Connecticut to live with a sister. I don't have any sisters, she would say. That's where I got that comment from before. She's like, you just want to pass me off to another, you know, bureaucracy? I'm not going to lie and say I have sisters to get off this island. I want my name cleared. I want to get back to my old job and I want all the harassment to stop. I don't want to vaporize in tonight. I want my name cleared. I want to go back to work. And it didn't seem like anyone was interested in making that happen. The thing though, that had a little teeth in it was that researchers had found upwards of 50 more healthy carriers of typhoid and no one had put them in a cottage on an island. So what is Mary still doing here? Giving her just a little bit more reason to want to clear her name. Her name had not been in the papers until now, until June of 1909, two years after she had been put on North Brother Island. Her name was revealed in a newspaper article. It had her actual name. Typhoid Mary is Mary Mallon, essentially is what this article said in big, splashy headlines. Not good. She and her lawyer went before a judge. So the point of the lawyer during his conversation with the judge seems to be, what authority do these people have to keep her? None. Au contraire, counselor. I'm sorry, you happen to be very wrong. Precedent states very clearly, and I quote, to accomplish and prevent the spread of contagious disease, persons may be seized and restrained of their liberty and ordered to leave the state. Buildings may be torn down, infected articles seized and destroyed, and many other things done which under ordinary circumstances would be considered gross outrage on the rights of persons and property. The danger to the public health is a sufficient ground for the exercise of police power in the restraint of liberty of such persons. And you know, the judge actually was very sympathetic. He's like, I feel for you, especially you're not sick. You've never been sick. I deeply sympathize with this unfortunate woman, but I must protect the community against a recurrence of spreading this disease. If she can prove to this court that she has been cured of this disease, we can revisit this at any time. And I welcome her attempts to do so. But as of right now, I cannot set her free. And Mary's opinion was this, and this is a direct quote. All the waters in the ocean couldn't clear me from this charge in the eyes of the health department. They want credit for protecting the rich, and I am the victim. 
So she fought in the court of public opinion, and she was doing a great job of portraying herself as the victim of the government. Uh, Irish immigrants everywhere were getting awful tired of the poor treatment they were getting at the hands of police and other citizens. And one of the quotes from this time from her in the newspaper, it seems incredible that in a Christian society, an innocent human being is to be treated this way. And, you know, so the violins were starting to play a little bit and public opinion was starting to see her as like, you know, that's crappy. And, and they didn't take those other people. So why are you the one? Why are you the one that can't walk around? I mean, I don't want typhoid any more than the next guy. But like if they're going to pull you, they should also pull the other 50. And um, you're just a poor. They don't even know it's you. Even though the court of public opinion was starting to change, Mary herself, she was back on North Brother Island with her dog and her little cottage. She was spending her time doing things like writing letters, threatening letters to George Soper and to Dr. Josephine Baker. <laughs> Who actually understood. She understood where Mary was coming from. I have to tell you, did I mention? I really kind of love this woman. (laughs) About a year after she was re-imprisoned, let's just call it that, a new administration came into the city of New York and a new commissioner of health was appointed. Now, he either sided with her or he wanted the cottage for somebody else or... He didn't want any more publicity, whatever the reason. I am voting for the last one. He wanted it to be SEP, and that means somebody else's problem. It is the most powerful force in the universe. Yep. In his mind, he thought that Mary had been taught how to not spread her germs by then. So he offered her a deal. He said, you have to make frequent visits to the health department. You may not work as a cook but I will release you if you agree to those two terms. He said in the newspaper, she has been hounded long enough and ought to have a chance at life at last. Someone in the administration got her a position as a laundress, lowest of the low as far as household servants went, the dirtiest job, the lowest status, (sighs) washing someone else's underwear by hand. I mean, this is insulting. It's also low paid. She's humiliated and angry. And this is what comes of middle class people reaching their hands and thinking they're helping the lower class. They don't always understand all the ramifications of things they've done. Mm -hmm. Um, This was like a slap at her very being. She sued the city for $50,000 for their ruining of her life, but that case never made it to court. The sentiment seems to be, be glad you're free and out of there um, and walk away. So for about two years, Mary upheld her end of the deal. She'd check in frequently, submit to being tested. She did her job as a laundress. But then her boyfriend, August Bryhoff, had a heart attack and he died. Something happened inside of Mary. She stopped checking in with the health department and she disappeared. We'll do a little jump in time again, like we did earlier. Five years later, in 1915, there was a sudden outbreak of typhoid. At the Sloan Hospital for Women in Manhattan, 25 cases of typhoid were reported. Doctors, nurses, staff, and even one patient contracted it. Two of those people also died from it. And this was a place known for its sanitation. This is a place known for keeping a clean house. You know, like it's even weirder than it showing up in a rich person's house uh, in Oyster Bay. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, this definitely attracted the attention of the health department. They arrived and systematically began testing all persons on the premises for typhoid. But hey, presto, when the cook's sample came back positive, 
There was no cook to be found. Mary Brown, her name was. Uh, nobody seems to know where she lives, sir. Dr. Soper later takes credit for making the connection to Mary Mallon, but in fact, everyone on earth made that super obvious leap of logic. (laughs) Well, Dr. Joe even claimed credit for her. She said that because, and, and this one actually sounds logical to me, because she was the head of Child Hygiene Bureau in New York. She was obviously brought in on the case. This is a a hospital, a maternity hospital. So she made the connection between Mary Brown and Mary Mallon. Uh, That's the one that I believe more than George Soper, who claims to have been consulted. And he was shown a written letter from Mrs. Brown. And by the handwriting, he was able to determine that it was Mary Mallon. But all you have to do is describe her personage and her temperament And the fact that 25 cases of typhoid have just broken out and anyone who's ever read a newspaper is going to make a guess. You know, so Dr. Joe's not wrong, but she's neither is she alone is what Mm -hmm. I'm saying. No, oh, no, 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 not (laughs) at all. (laughs) Dr. Soper also tried to take credit in his later work, written work, for finding her, though that glory, according to newspapers of the day, seems to be a matter of actual careful investigation by the police departments, just who you think would be involved. (laughs) And you, my friends, are literally not going to believe this. And I swear it is true. And I put my book down for a minute in case my brain had turned off. But I swear they found her in hiding at a friend's house in the Corona neighborhood of Queens. Rewind that. (laughs) They found Mary Mallon, Typhoid Mary, super carrier of typhoid, of a virulent and many times fatal disease in Corona, New York. Oh, I don't know what to say about that. I know. No. When they backtracked her employment again, it looks like she had worked at a few restaurants, some hotels, a sanatorium in New Jersey. She'd been a very active cook. She couldn't get a job with her own name, so she used a variety of pseudonyms. Mary Bryhoff, Mary Brown, obviously. Uh, Marie, she went by a few times. She could not afford to try and enter her former Gilded Age world again with the 1% because she was too famous for that. Um, She came quietly this time. She was broken. She was done. And I must say the public was not on her side anymore. Who knows how many people that this person has infected in those five years knowingly. At this point, the victim status is a little suspect. You know, she knows she can spread it, but yet she went to work at a maternity hospital putting babies and mothers in the worst sort of danger. You know, I have a little sympathy for her because cooking is all she knows. And that's what she knows how to do. And it's a bummer, you know, and and that laundress work is sucky and she's not educated enough to be a teacher and she wasn't married. And, you know, there's not a lot of options. Um, So I do I do get it. I just wish either somebody had offered some more concrete help or she had asked for more concrete help and explained the situation. So anyway, I do have a little vestige left, although that was dirty to show up at the maternity hospital. I'm sorry. No. (laughs) That's the uh, part where I started to crack. Like, uh, uh, no, mm -mm, not cool. Well, back to North Brother Island she went, of course. This time there would be no exit, Um, but she'd be taken care of physically. And she was... Finally trained in some new jobs. Um, she did work while she was on the island for a very, 
very small paycheck, but uh, she was a hospital helper. She made beaded jewelry a few times. She worked as a housekeeper on the island. And eventually, she was trained to assist in the pathology lab. She made slides of samples and did administrative work and light cleaning, which is the most ironic job she could have possibly have gotten. A noted bacteriologist later said in an interview that they had to redo absolutely everything because she contaminated every single thing she had ever touched. So it was kind of make work jobs and it was irritating to this person that they had to work under these circumstances. Um, Her later job, the lab assistant job, a far more real and actual responsibility was given to her by Dr. Alexandra Plowska, who was from Moscow and may in fact have been a countess. Ha-cha-cha. But I think Dr. Plowska actually treated her more like a human than almost anyone. And there was one nurse with the fabulous last name of Offspring that she was able to go on walks with and became really good friends. You know how you meet your lady for a walk and talk about your day and take a turn around the island? (laughs) It's refreshing after sitting so long in one attitude. Ten points if you can note that reference. (laughs) Um, Anyway, also, she made and sold cakes to other women on the island, which proves that some fools just do not get the news. Okay. You know what it proved to me was that she was very likable and that she made friends and that people bought her cakes and then pitched them. Okay. I get it. You know what? There is a story about she gave that irritable bacteriologist a beautiful and picture perfect apple that she had found on her way into work. And the bacteriologist is like, I don't even want to pick it up to throw it away and made a point of putting it near the urine samples and like, oopsing. Oh, I know. I dropped all this urine on the apple. Dang. And had to throw it away. So, uh, yes, you're right. She was even, after some time, given permission to leave for a day. And she would go into the city for the day and visit friends, presumably. And I believe they were friends that were connected through the island, people she met. So I think this is her retirement. You know, she's she's in her assisted living community here and she's doing her daily chores and hobbies and just living out her golden years as far as I'm concerned. And this is the nicest she's ever lived in her entire life. Now, all of us right now, we're going, I understand. You know, normally we'd be like, oh, that's really sweet. But I totally understand. I mean, we can't go anywhere now. So I relate to her for sure, especially in this time, you know, of her life. During her day trips to New York City, which actually boggled my mind that they let her do this, <laughs> that they trusted her. That to they do trusted this. her. That says a lot about her character, I think. Well, yeah, except for she does have a history of peace outing and disappearing is all I'm saying about that. But anyway, whatever. Maybe she's just tired. But Dr. Plowska's house is one of the destinations where she went. And that good doctor's daughters remember Mary Mellon coming to their house for dinner. And then after Mary Mellon left and only afterward, every dish on the table had to be put in a pot and boiled. But yet this doctor trusted Mary Mellon around not only her children, but the food in the house too. So treated her like a human being in need of friendship. So hats off to Dr. Plaska. She's a nice lady. Yeah. 
In September of 1932, Mary was 63 and she suffered a paralyzing stroke. One of the scientists noticed that Mary was late for work and went looking for her up in the cottage. And oh my, when that person opened the door, what to her wondering eyes should appear? Uh, The hygiene, let's say, was way, way down. We would call it a hoarder's house now. And there was Mary lying on the filthy floor of a house full of junk and wreckage everywhere. And it smelled like a garbage dump. And no one had been in there in decades. No one had seen it um, the way that she was living. And I would say from here that Mary was probably profoundly depressed about her situation. You know, she never allowed typhoid to be discussed in her presence. Anytime she was absolutely pressed on it by one of the scientists that she felt like she had to give an answer to, she kept maintaining she'd been the victim of evil doctors and she had nothing to do with it. And she was here under false pretenses. Well, obviously, they couldn't let her stay in her cottage. She needed care. She was confined to the children's ward in a hospital building on the island for the next six years. During the six years of her bedridden lifestyle over in the children's ward, she did have loyal friends who visited her each and every week up until the very end, including the kindly Dr. Plowska and her family, her walking buddy, the nurse Adelaide Offspring, several friends that she had made in the city. I I do think that speaks to her character, that she had people willing to make what was probably a very uncomfortable journey to an uncomfortable place and sit with her and visit with her. So she was not alone um, and devoid of anyone who loved her. Mary Mallon died on November 11th, 1938. She was 69 years old and had been a resident of Riverside Hospital on North Brother Island for 23 years. Some accounts will tell you an autopsy was performed after her death in which, sure enough, they found that her gallbladder had been the host of the typhoid all along. And if she had only submitted to the operation a number of decades ago, she would have been free to move about the country. Other accounts will tell you no such thing happened. And it was all backpedaling afterward to try to whitewash the situation that they had had her cooped up for so long. After a small funeral, she was cremated and her ashes buried in St. Raymond's Cemetery in the Bronx. Mary had ordered and paid for her own gravestone, which reads simply, Mary Mallon died November 11th, 1938. Jesus, mercy, which to me seems like a plea. Yeah, kind of. Because her room and board had been covered for those 23 years and she was getting paid a small amount for her work, she was able to save just under $5,000, which is pretty near $90,000 in today's dollars. So she had prepaid for her funeral and for her headstone, and she divided the rest between her priest, Catholic charities, and the friends that she had made during her residence on the island. In the years since her death, North Brother Island went through some changes, too. After the hospital closed, it turned into veterans housing after World War II. Then it was turned into a drug rehab facility. And finally, the facilities were abandoned. They just turned off the lights and walked away in 1963. The vegetation of the island took over from there. And now it's just this overgrown. It's beautiful. We'll link you up to a video of it and some photographs. It's just like they walked away, which is exactly what they did. This little island in the middle of all of that activity in New York. 
It's just silent. It's a bird sanctuary. And there's vegetation growing in all of those buildings. Mary's Cottage, however, is no longer in existence. And that brings us to the end of the life of Mary Mallon, which history will always remember as Typhoid Mary. Shall we talk about media? Let us do talk about media. In these days of no commute, I find myself not listening to audiobooks as much as I once did. However, I found a good one on Libby, and I just want to again say, if you have a library card, it's your lucky day because Libby and some libraries call it Overdrive, that app can save your reason, ladies and gentlemen. Uh Um, Libby and or Overdrive allows you to borrow audiobooks and ebooks from your library free of charge, and you keep them for between 14 and 21 days, depending on how popular it is. Yes. So I got this one off of our Libby, Terrible Typhoid Mary, The True Story of the Deadliest Cook in America by Susan Campbell Bartoletti. And that was very uplifting to be listening to while marching around my neighborhood. (laughs) (laughs) That's so funny because I listened to that one on audiobook too. And I was like, this is really enjoyable, which I thought was weird for me to think. It's a YA book and every chapter has a clever title like in which Mrs. Warren has a servant problem and in which Mary fights like a caged lion. But I just love the way that she wrote the story. It was really told like a story. The book? That is so surprising to me that my mouth fell open when I saw it available. I bought it um, in this house. As longtime listeners might know, I have a professional chef living with me who really, really looked up to the late Anthony Bourdain, author of, among other things, Kitchen Confidential, um, host of many clever TV shows about cooking and travel. So he wrote what he calls an urban historical called Typhoid Mary. And he has written a story of her life. And I love how I can hear his voice, Mm -hmm. especially when he goes off on rants about how when she's working in the hotel, blah, blah, blah. When you make 600 orders of eggs, who cares if your Band-Aid falls off and blah, blah, blah. I can (laughs) hear his his voice. He's very passionate. And I have to say, mostly on her side except Mm -hmm. he he cannot be, you know, but he's on her side as a fellow cook and he understands the passion that she had for it and, and the unfairness with which she was treated. So I actually highly recommend this for any fan of Anthony Bourdain. I I really do. I do too. And I had, because we can't get to our libraries, I'm relying on apps and Amazon. And I read this one on my Kindle and I really enjoyed it. Like, just like you, I could hear him, you know, with every sentence that I read, which was, it was sad, but also delightful. And in true Hermione fashion, (laughs) I own (laughs) this book that I once bought at a half price books for a little light reading. I'm a mess called Typhoid Mary Captive to the Public's Health um, by Judith Walter Levitt. And the cover shows a popular post- reclaiming Mary, you know, when the public sentiment was not so awesome toward her cartoon of Mary Mallon placing skulls into a frying pan. (laughs) That is the cover. This book, I joke about it being light reading. It is not light reading. This goes into the legalities and um, the details of her confinement in a way that the other books really 
didn't do. This is the only place where I read that Mary Mellon was allowed to nurse the children who are in Riverside Hospital with every kind of contagious disease and that she's allowed to prepare their meals. I cannot believe that, but this is literally just a quote from a newspaper. So a lot of the coverage of the day appears in this book, which I really like. So I like the 360 degree picture, um, but this is really for somebody that wants to get in to a lot of detail. Mm -hmm. I completely agree with that assessment. And again, I had that on my Kindle and I was like reading it. I'm like, is this going to (laughs) stop? Like the little bar wasn't moving on the bottom. I'm like, holy cow, this must be a really long book. Trying to see how many pages it is. 320. But a lot of that is footnotes. And the footnotes are full of paragraphs, too. Mm -hmm. So you're just like, you could have just put that in the... Oof. But yes. (laughs) Well, on the Kindle, you just have to like click on the number and it takes you right to the footnote and then you can go back, which is the only thing that I like about reading books on the Kindle. I really like to have an actual book in my hands with post-it notes stuck on the side. Yes. Very good. So on a lighter note, finally, and hooray, there is a Drunk History episode about Mary Mallon, and it is a good one. It's not (laughs) as good as Harriet Tubman, which will remain my number one of all time, Drunk History, but it is right up there. I would say it's a solid number two. (laughs) Oh my God. I don't know how we're going to edit that laugh. Oh Oh my gosh. That's hysterical. (laughs) Anyway, don't let kids listen because there's a couple cusses in there. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness me. Uh, Okay, so there was a uh, Nova series on PBS. And if you go to pbs.org, we'll provide you the link. There is an interactive rabbit hole situation. Sometimes when I click on that site, the video is not there. But never fear because there is a full transcript on the same site. So if you want to just read through the transcript of the TV show, you can do so. And what is that about? It is about, it's about Mary Mallon is what it's about. But then there's like rabbit holes you can go down about the history of treatment of typhoid, about Brother Island, about different things you can explore. It's very good. Cool. I think uh, North Brother Island is a good rabbit hole to fall down. There was a book, it is a coffee table book with photographs by Christopher Payne. And I found a video of it on New Jersey PBS. There's a video interview with him with some of his photographs of North Brother Island now. You have to get special permission to go there, but it's just fascinating to go around the island and to see things. And what they do in this video is they'll show you what it looked like back in like the 1940s, a photograph, and then one of Christopher's photographs right next to it of what it looks like now. It's kind of neat how fast nature decides to take things back over. It's actually kind of scary. I know. There was a Doctor Who episode that that happened, that nature took over the whole world like that. And it was pretty cool. And it reminds, it reminds me a lot of that episode. Hmm. Yeah. I wish I knew the name of the episode. Of course, all the Whovians are yelling it right now. I know. <laughs> I this- disappointed you. I let you down. 
That is frustrating when you're listening to a podcast and you want to say something and they can't hear you. And so they keep wondering about something. You're like, no, it's this. I wonder if it's the No. And they just can't hear you. I don't understand it. Um, I would like to link you up to an article about Castle Garden and also a couple of pertinent Bowery Boys episodes. I can't think of a more New York-centered type of story, and that is what they cover. So we'll link you to a couple of appropriate episodes. Also, if you want to read Dr. George Soper's take on all of it, you can read it in its entirety. His article, The Curious Career of Typhoid Mary, has been digitalized by uh, the New York Institute of Health, I believe, and uh, it is in full up there on the old internet. All I wanted to read about it was the one that was in uh, Judith Levitt's book. That was enough for me. She had a lot of excerpts from it. Yeah, yeah. Well, and so did Anthony Bourdain, but only when it was like some kind of irritable comment, he quoted a lot of those. It fit right into his voice, her voice, his voice. It was great. Isn't it interesting how when you read like the first book that you read kind of sets a tone for you? Mm-hmm. That's what, Yeah, that's what happened to me, especially the first book I read was his. So I did get that perspective. And then the last one I read was a detailed one because there was a lot of pages. <laughs> I got nothing else. In closing, this headline struck me as being a perfect representation of Mary's story. The headline said, the extraordinary predicament of Mary Mallon, a prisoner of New York's quarantine hospital. Ooh, it kind of nicely puts into just one sentence. Was she a villain or was she just a victim of circumstances? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would like to perhaps close with a touching little story. After Anthony Bourdain had finished researching and writing his book while he was waiting for it to be published, he got special permission to go to North Brother Island to make a pilgrimage of sorts, and he took with him an offering, the very first professional chef knife he had ever bought for himself, which if you're a chef, you know, you know how valuable that is to you, which had been sharpened within an inch of its life to the point where not only did it not look like itself anymore, you couldn't use it to cut anything anymore. It was just um, a memento at this point, a beloved one, but not a useful knife. He took it with him. And he went to her gravesite and he looked around to make sure nobody was looking and he scraped some dirt away from her grave and he placed his very first chef knife in the ground and covered it back up, waited a moment, silently offering this to her for her history and everything she'd suffered. And I hope she was able to rest in peace at last. Thanks for listening. Bye. If you liked what you heard today, yes, please do tell a few friends, but can we ask you a favor? Let them know maybe about a specific episode that you think they personally might like. Let me give you my own recommendation for something you could listen to, especially for parents of teenagers. Long, long ago, the year Jet was born in 2005, the Manic Mommies brought me all the way through middle school. We had children the same age and really let it be real. And um, 
<laughs> laid it all out there. And when they stopped posting, I did have a bit of a grieving period, but they're back. Parents of teens need a team. We don't usually get one. And hooray. So Manic Mommies is back if that is something you're interested in. Thank you guys so much for making the History Chicks a part of your lives during your quarantine or stay at home or shelter in place, wherever you might be. We're thinking of you all and wish you and yours the very best. Join us virtually in the lounge, please do, where everyone is talking, especially on Tuesdays where you can toot your own horn. So we have stories of babies born to scones made to, to hey, I took a shower today. We get it. <laughs> today I took my son out to drive for the first time on my lunch break. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's all I'm saying about that. You can join the Facebook group by going to our Facebook page, The History Chicks, and just clicking the blue box that says, join group, answer the questions, and you're in. The song in the middle is called Irish Lamentation by Musica Pacifica, and the end song is Bad Sign by Brad Sucks. I was laying on the floor when you were gone, like you were something I could die for. And now I guess it was